Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. Today, we're pulling back some of the layers of Charleston's history. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. We're going to be visiting four sites today. All of them are places you might walk by without ever knowing what happened there. They don't have historic markers, and the history they tell is one that people may have tried to conceal. These sites and others are featured in a project by reporter Jennifer Barry Hawes. We'll briefly hear from her, but for most of our episode today, we're going to hear these stories from a few historians and descendants who have dedicated their time to uncovering them. And this episode is going to be a little bit longer than you're used to, just so we can give each of those guests the the time to, to fully explain those stories and put them in context. So thanks for, for listening and, and hopefully sticking around for all four stories. For more information on those places and others, you'll be able to find a link to Jennifer's story in our show notes. And I'm excited we're uh, doing our podcast on the story this week because I was able to photograph uh, these sites that Jennifer wrote about. Um, I knew about a few of them, but a lot of them were uh, new to me. Uh, as someone who moved here a little over a year ago, it was really a very eye-opening experience to to go to these places that I've walked by numerous times, and they had this very deep history that has either been forgotten about or concealed. And so I'm glad we're able to, to speak with uh, these historians and descendants and let them tell more about these sites. Right, so let's go to Jennifer briefly, who explained where the idea for this story came from. The idea of this really began back when I was covering the aftermath of the Emanuel AME church shooting and talking to a woman named Felicia Sanders, who um, was a survivor of the shooting. Her son and aunt and cousin and ministers had all died around her, and she wound up leaving Emanuel afterward and went to a church very close by called Second Presbyterian. And I realized that that was the church where Denmark Vesey had uh, originally been worshiping. It's a predominantly white church. Before he moved over to the church that became Emmanuel, it was called the African Church at the time. And it made this really interesting historical loop. And so as I began looking a little bit more at the route the survivors, including Felicia, took after the shooting, it it intrigued me because they went from the church across Calhoun Street, then along Marion Square, past the Calhoun Monument, which of course is gone now, um, past the Wade Hampton Monument, and into a building uh, that used to be the Citadel's building and was built actually right after the Denmark VC Rebellion was foiled as a way to keep a better eye on the enslaved population of the city. So it just struck me that everywhere you look around Charleston, particularly on the peninsula, there's these stories that have really um, not been well remembered. And so as we approached the 350th anniversary of the city, we started talking about ways to cover it, and it seemed like a, like a good time to take a look at uh, some of the more forgotten places that played very important roles, um, but as I said, have been largely forgotten. It's almost like the city has this underlay of places that were important, um, but you don't really see them or hear about them when people talk about Charleston history often. I think the interesting element with this too is you think of Charleston and there are so many historic markers. There are so many ways that history is remembered in the city, right? But here you're looking at the places that that aren't marked, that aren't as as known, 
why is that? Why is there that underlying story? We have so many, like I said, signs and, and stories and ways that history is remembered very visibly in Charleston. These sites that you're looking at, why are those ones that are not marked? Well, it's the matter of who is keeping that history. And the people who are keeping that history, by and large, were white Charlestonians. And white Charlestonians didn't often preserve the memories of the places that involved slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, Although that's changing recently, there's certainly been more attention to it. There is finally a statue of V.C. in Hampton Park. There is a marker at the Exchange Building that talks about the mass auctions of people that were held there. And so there's improvement, but the history by and large has been recorded by people who wanted to tell a story of the successful white Charlestonians and a story of the Civil War from the perspective of the white Southerners. And while that's changing for a long, long time, those people weren't including the stories like the ones we tried to tell here. These sites, what periods in Charleston's history does it take us through? Where does it start and and, and where did you kind of end end this, this journey through these different places? Well, I wanted to start it with the moment the colonists arrived. And so uh, when they arrived, they first were in West Ashley and then moved over to the peninsula. So I actually started when they got to the peninsula because I wanted to uh, really hone in and focus on uh, on that area of the city. So I started with around 1696 when William Rhett uh, made a voyage to uh, the mouth of the Gambia River and purchased more than 100 people and brought them back to his wharf here for sale and figured that was a good starting point. It's the earliest voyage with that purpose that we could find, and so it seemed like a logical place to start. There had been enslaved people in the colony before that. This is the earliest known voyage of of a white ship owner with a mass of people. So we start with him, and then we go really through the 1950s and when the Hotel James opens, and then into the 70s when it closes and uh, integration has arrived into Charleston. And while that had many important advantages, one thing it did was it it took away customers, a lot of the black-owned businesses, especially along Spring and Cannon Street in there, and so they started to close. And so it also ended an era of this really vibrant community of black-owned businesses. And just to explain, Hotel James was a, a black-owned hotel, right? And, and specifically for black patrons, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. It was the first one that was um, open for black patrons, Um, black travelers who came through town could not stay at the white-owned hotels, so they would often stay with people in the community. The Hotel James, however, meant uh, not only did they have a hotel to stay at, but also big names and entertainment could come and people could gather and, um, you know, have a great time as well. So it it meant a couple different things for the community, but primarily it meant that, yes, there was a, a, you know, finally a hotel where people could stay at. What's there now? The Hotel James site now is the McDonald's on on Spring Street. And that's a theme throughout the whole story, right, is some of these places, it's it's very much not obvious visually. People wouldn't know visually uh, unless they, they knew the story behind it, what happened there, right? Exactly. And that's what I really wanted to try to get across was the idea that there are these really important places, but there's nothing to mark them and that what's there now is so different. You would have no idea just to look at the space. And that's true, really, of all of the places um, that we included in the story is just there's just nothing there that would remind people. 
The first place we're going is Broad Street, to a place that's now a bank. There's nothing there to mark what it used to be, an auction house, but soon that's going to change. Well, just strolling along Broad Street now, and my having strolled along Broad Street for 68 years, what you just see is a, a beautiful historic business center, which it has been for centuries. Margaret Seidler is a native Charlestonian. Through research, she learned later in life that she was related to William Payne, who once brokered enslaved people from an auction house on Broad Street. What specifically you would see at the site of my fourth great-grandfather, William Payne, is you would see a a three-story brick building with arched windows. And beside it, you would see a more ornate building also about three stories. So these two buildings that were present, in fact, are one building now in terms of the facade has been combined. And so what you would see is a new stucco white building with beautiful white columns, uh, very regal. And it would belie the fact of the sort of business that took place there for decades. I've been told by a local historian that there were often traffic jams on Broad Street. And it was jammed in many cases because of the number of enslaved who were being moved around for sale. What you'd also see is a a firsthand understanding that this was the business of Charleston. Um, Most of what we've talked about in terms of our history here is the transatlantic trade of enslaved people from Africa. And what the research that I've done on my family has shown me is that there was a, a, a very huge another element of the business, and that was the domestic slave trade. So you might see uh, people being handled for sale right on the sidewalk, maybe right in the street, certainly on the corner of East Bay and in Broad Street is where the larger auctions took place. Uh, You might also see people going into the Broad Street office to view human beings who were for sale. Uh, A lot of the sales were not auctions. Um, from the ads that I have um, archived, they were from uh, private sales. So in many cases, when a Charleston owner would die, his estate would be sold and his property would be sold. And even though the enslaved people were his property, they would be sold separately. I've only seen one case out of over 1,100 ads where the enslaved people were sold in an estate along with the other property. It's been separate. We've mentioned the name William Payne. Who was he? He came to the uh, United States in the 1780s, and he was the son of servants in Ireland. And he accompanied a young man who was the uh, son of these very wealthy people in Ireland who had a big Charleston connection. So he came over and accompanied him here. So he got pretty connected with some of the moneyed people here, even though he was really from nothing. And he recognized that you could get rich quick here in Charleston through this business of enslaving people, domestic and or people transatlantic at that point. So he got fortunate. He married really well. And I believe that's how he got the two parcels, um, which is that white stucco building 
on Broad Street. What happened to him, though, after he had this little retail business, he went bankrupt in 1803. And he was married. He had four children. And he came up with the idea that he would become a broker, an auctioneer, also known then as a vendue master. And so he quickly got himself back in financial solvency by the brokering of enslaved people through estates, through debts. He, for many years, acted as an agent for the city of Charleston for its sheriff. Um, He also uh, made money managing runaways, seeking runaways, and then making sure they went to the workhouse. I mean, he made a business of it. And he, of, of his four children, two of his sons actually went in the business with him. How did you discover that this person was in your family line? So all my life, I believed I was fifth generation Charlestonian on my mom's side and that we were from poor German immigrants on the east side. And through DNA testing, I found out that I had DNA cousins of African descent. And they asked me, would I trace my history? I didn't really, wasn't interested in it. I never really had. And they asked me to do that so they could understand their history. And so that's how I uncovered John Torrens, his daughter, Maria Margaret Torrens, who married William Payne. And then my third great-grandfather, Robert Keith Payne, who became a city surveyor. That was in April 2018. So I was 66, had no idea about any of these family members. So I I really got on a mission. I've really dedicated my, my life at this point to finding out about what they did, who they sold. And a lot of my research is intended to help people of African descent who are from this area find their ancestors. So as I research newspaper ads, I have recorded uh, the names of the estates. I've got the names of all the first names of all the enslaved people wherever I ran into them in the ads. I mean, I've documented over 9,200 people that were sold. And so I'm making all that research available to the International African American Museum, to the Beyond Kin Project, the Avery Institute, you name it. Because if someone down the road wants to find their family, this this may be the one missing link. For me, being a, a well-educated uh, white female here, and that I had never heard about this domestic slave trade. I had no idea that these buildings on Broad Street, and by the way, I have found there were 23 other auction houses on Broad Street, just on Broad, or I should say auctioneers um, on Broad Street, that if I didn't know it, then most people didn't. So I feel like part of the work that I've done is to tell a more complete truth here, recognizing um, what our families, our families did to the enslaved. I hear many people say, well, you know, you didn't have anything to do with that. Well, certainly that's true. What I can do, though, I can't change history and I can't change the past. What I can do is I can make sure that the history is told, that it's not lost, because this is the truth of Charleston. So my hope is, is that others will join me, and I'm happy to mentor people in doing the research, um, either on their relatives like mine that were here, because I've got the names of the other traders, but just to shine a light on it. In these discussions, what we're talking about is those layers of history that people 
don't see when they're walking the streets of, of Charleston. And I'm wondering, this discovery and all of this research, how has this changed how you see the city? It's just, it's a sadness. <clears throat> and it just creates um, a deeper understanding of, you know, where we are as not only a, a community, but certainly where we are as a country and the need for truth to be told and healing to take place and relationships to be built. And, and, and that's been, that really has been my personal mission since the massacre at Mother Emanuel. That really cemented for me that for our country to be healthy, we have got to figure out a positive way to deal with our past. One of the reasons that I did all the research when I found out about William Payne was I wanted to, to share what I had learned about my hometown on a permanent basis so that the story would be there and, and be there to be seen and recognized as history. And so I started working to, to see about having a marker, a historical marker placed at the site of what I call 3234 Broad. 32 doesn't really, quote, exist anymore. Those two buildings, the facade has been combined. And, and with the support of Nick Butler at the library and Bernie Powers, uh, this is about to become a reality. The owners of the building, which is a company called Wessex, the principal is James Smith, have agreed to have a bronze marker mounted on the white stucco building with the big white columns. And the sponsor of this bronze plaque is going to be the, the Center for the Study of Slavery in Charleston, which is hosted at the College of Charleston. And it's a factual summary of, you know, the fact that William Payne and, and his sons sold more than 9,200 enslaved people, brokered the sale of 9,200 enslaved people over a 30-year career there, and that, that it carried on, and it names the other brokers who rented the building from them right on up until the Civil War. And it's, it's going to be there for someone who's casually walking by. It's going to be there for our wonderful Charleston tour guides to stop and have our visitors see Broad Street in its wholeness where they're just seeing one side of it. Uh, so that is uh, something that my family and I believe is an important legacy for us and something that'll be there long after we're all gone. I think what I want people to remember is that um, remain curious. Interview the elder people in your family, oral histories. Um, that's a big regret that I have is that all I have from my grandmother, who was born here in 1882, which is she's the she's the lineage for this whole thing. I mean, she lived to be 100. I had this, this two sheets of scribble paper that she put in the family Bible. And if it hadn't been for that, I would have never I would have never been able to find what I found. So I'd say be curious, know that even though uh, you're not 
a quote historian or a scholar, which I'm neither, that given the right support, you can open up a whole nother part of understanding that would have totally been lost in your own community. People who live in or have visited Charleston have probably seen the old jail that stands on Magazine Street. It's this imposing castle-like structure. Some people call it the most haunted place in the city. But fewer people are aware of what used to stand beside it. If you're standing there looking at the present jail, that would be a very imposing structure, very thick, heavy walls. It's a fortress-like building, and the workhouse would have been adjacent to uh, the present old jail. And the location for the workhouse would presently be a site for public housing. The structures at the time were designed to be physically imposing, to provide a kind of a deterrent effect so that people would not commit the offenses and crimes that would that would land them inside of either of the facilities, the, the city jail or the, the old workhouse. And then if one was in the vicinity at the time, one would not only have seen these imposing structures, but one would have heard certainly blood-curdling screams and sounds from human beings being punished. Dr. Bernard Powers is the director of the College of Charleston Center for the Study of Slavery and the interim CEO of the International African American Museum, which is under construction now in downtown Charleston. And so the workhouse was a facility that by the, uh, the very end of the 18th century, the early 19th century, was by and large used to, to house and to punish enslaved people that were deemed guilty of a variety of different, different offenses. So, for example, if, a, if an enslaved person ran away, then the owner would in all likelihood put an advertisement for their recovery in the newspaper. And it might end by saying that the person, if captured, could be brought to whoever the owner was or could be deposited at the workhouse. And then the person deposited at the workhouse, the enslaved person would be picked up at some point by the, uh, by the owner. But also slaves who were housed in the workhouse were put to work. It's called a workhouse for good reason. That meant that they, they could have been used to break rocks or they could have been put to work on multi-person treadmills that were used to, to process products out of grain. But also, let's say a slave did something that was deemed offensive to, to the owner in the city. The owner then might send the slave down to the workhouse with a note, and the note might have said, lay 10 lashes on this boy's bare back. And so the slave would have given the, uh, given the, the note to the master of the workhouse or one of uh, the other attendants there, and then the punishment would have been administered. The workhouse was a place of holding and a place of punishment 
and a place of work. This building had been used at as a place where sugar was stored. And so it was sometimes called the sugar house. But that had another meaning also. And the other meaning that it had was after this enslaved person was punished, they would be, in effect, sweetened up. Their disposition would be changed. They would be more obedient, compliant, and so on and so forth. So that was kind of the other meaning of of sending a person to the sugar house to be sweetened up. This was a city-owned institution, the the workhouse, and and also made revenue for for the city of Charleston, right? And I think that's something that people don't always think about. They think of planters profiting off of enslavement, but but the actual local government did. Can you speak more to that and and specifically the workhouse and and the money that the city made from it? And that's a very important point because people really today don't have a full appreciation of how the tentacles of the institution of slavery pervaded virtually every aspect of life and virtually every other extant institution at the time. And so indeed, the workhouse, a place where enslaved people worked, did in fact generate revenue. So there were, uh, there were fees. There were fees that were charged for services. You know, as I mentioned, that uh, a master or mistress could send a, a quote-unquote misbehaving uh, slave down there for punishment. If a runaway had been captured and then deposited at the workhouse until the master or mistress came to pick that person up, well, there were daily fees because the person is being housed, and so there were costs there. And so the city wanted to make sure that uh, it recouped its costs, but not only recouped its costs, but used its site and the services provided to generate revenue. Now, let's say a slave was captured, deposited at the, the workhouse, and no one came to pick that person up to claim that individual. Then... After a certain point, the city would have sold the person at an auction. So this would have this would have been another way that the city would have uh, would have generated revenue. Now, as I said, that the workhouse was was uh, was a site of, of work, and so uh, the treadmills that slaves kept there and worked on was used for for milling corn. Then the corn products could be used, and they were used sometimes, to provide sustenance for those people who were housed in the poorhouse of the city. So in that sense, you have uh, the use of slave labor saving the city money. So in a number of ways, uh, the city used the workhouse to generate revenue. It amounted to thousands of dollars every year. For example, in the, the, the early 1840s, we know that the workhouse was generating in excess of $8,000 per year. And so, yes, we have uh, records today of the 
account books that were maintained by the officials who administered and maintained the, the workhouse. There were regular reports that were given to the city council, and also there were regular reports that were that were published in the local newspapers. There were lots of people who traveled to Charleston, let's say, during the antebellum period, and a lot of those travelers kept a kind of a travelogue, diaries, and so on of their of their visits. And one of the places that they that they sometimes uh, were attracted to was the the workhouse and and the old jail, you know, because these were very very imposing structures and very 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 um, impressive from the outside. And so people wanted to to see them, and sometimes they were allowed inside also. It's interesting you mentioned that that people on their travels at that time would sometimes stop to see the jail. It is still a place that people go to. There are uh, quote unquote ghost tours that are that are hosted there. And of course the the workhouse is not physically present, but also most of those visitors who go through that jail are not getting the story of what happened just next door. I guess, what's your understanding of how aware people may be of of the workhouse? And also, uh, why isn't there something to mark where it was? I think that this site suffers, like so many in the city, as being unmarked sites of African-American history because, historically, the city and the residents simply have not wanted to deal with and recognize the difficult and in this case horrendous stories and episodes that unfolded in these locations so to mark them would then lead to all kinds of uncomfortable discussions and recognition of the role and, and, you know, and in this case, what we've been talking about, uh, municipal government is directly implicated in this. And so this historically in a place like Charleston, which was a city that for so much of its history was a majority black city and for a good deal of its history involved so many white families in the institution of slaveholding that it it was just deemed best to forget about these episodes. They were not considered particularly important for the city's main history, which was which was white history. And so therefore they've been unmarked and they have been overlooked, which is very unfortunate because it is only by, for example, seeing and learning about the workhouse that one understands the set of circumstances that contributes to a major issue uh, in American history that everybody knows something about, the Civil War. And I say that because the workhouse demonstrates that white Carolinians White Charlestonians, in particular, knew that they always had to maintain the upper hand. There was always a question of racial control. 
as we've discussed, there is not something there to tell people that that history. What would you suggest uh, maybe to, to have there marking it and but recording that history in a, in a physical way in that space? Well, the grounds ought to be fully interpreted to tell the story that we have been talking about here uh, this morning. This is, uh, for example, uh, an important site connected to the Denmark Vesey slave conspiracy. So it ought to be marked and acknowledged in such a way, just as the city hall has a marker indicating its connection to the Vesey conspiracy. It would be important to recognize this place for what it was. And the fact that it's not recognized today puts it in the same plight, really, with so many other locations around the city. And there are lots of sites like that. And uh, we need to recognize them because without doing so, we really are not making the whole history of the city available to the citizens as well as our visitors. And uh, hopefully, uh, going forward, we'll, we'll do a better job of that. The next place we're going is White Point Garden, right at the tip of Charleston's peninsula. It's a place where people come to picnic and tourists pose for photos. Unlike our first two sites, it is marked and remembered, but an important part of its history is not. Well, if you were standing in White Point Garden today, you would see uh, a beautiful park. Um, it's a gorgeous place. It's at the base of uh, the peninsula of Charleston, where the battery is. Um, uh, you see the water, you look out across and see Fort Sumter. Uh, you would see a number of Confederate monuments, um, uh, most prominently a monument um, to the defenders of, of Fort Sumter. Um, uh, but it's, a, it's sort of a, a place that people go to, you know, I think both tourists to Charleston and also locals go to relax, to throw the fr Frisbee around. Sometimes there are people fishing um, off of the battery. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, a beautiful space. Ethan Keitel is a history professor at California State University. He lived in Charleston for part of the mid-2000s and co-authored the book Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy with his wife, Blaine Robert. Their book was published in 2018. What's, what's really important about um, what happens in White Point Garden starting at the end of the Civil War, so starting in eight, first in 1865, but lasting until the early 1880s, is it becomes a place where uh, African-Americans uh, former slaves, for the most part, uh, congregate. Um, uh, it was, it, traditionally, White Point Garden is a place that they had been excluded from uh, before the Civil War, uh, but they begin congregating there, especially on the 4th of July, especially on January 1st, which is Emancipation Day. Uh, they turn this space, this traditionally white space, into um, a, uh, a place where they are going to mark their newfound freedom. Um, they put on um, what some historians and one, some people at the time called festivals of freedom there. Uh, and they, they turn in, into um, uh, the end destination of uh, parades, uh, parades that are held on the uh, 4th of July, parades that are held uh, on Emancipation Day, January 1st. Um, uh, parades would end there. They would start um, in the middle of town, parade through town. They would end there. Thousands of people would be involved. There would be thousands of um, uh, formerly enslaved 
uh, African-Americans coming from all around the sea islands, coming from the city itself um, to picnic, to have barbecues, uh, to buy uh, fried fish and sassafras beer, to drink, to dance dances, to, um, to sing songs, to listen to speeches. Um, so it would be a place of revelry, but 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 with a very um, uh, real political meaning because they they tra were transforming what was traditionally a um, white celebration of American independence, Fourth of July, into a black uh, holiday of emancipation. And uh, out of this uh, celebration, uh, a dance was born, the Tulalu. Could you describe uh, what that was and how do we, you know, kind of know about it? Uh, that's a great question. So the Tulalu was a, was a, a ring dance, a dance um, that was sort of built on traditional uh, dances that uh, enslaved people performed for decades in Charleston and the, in the surrounding areas and, and in throughout much of the much of the South. Um, uh, and we know about this dance because it's, it's reported um, uh, on in the newspapers that are covering the 4th of July festivities. Um, the first time it's sung and danced is in 1876, on July 4th, 1876. Really popular, um, the, 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 the account um, in the, the Charleston Courier. So, um, uh, you know, the, the part of the, the paper that the one, one half of the paper that, that this um, podcast is a part of. Uh, reported on it and um, uh, described this ring dance where you know dozen men and women would 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 dance in a circle and sing this song um, and Tulalu is one of the refrains um, and then people would come in and, and um, dance in the middle and then another uh, group of people would go uh, they'd go out and another couple would come in and, and, and dance in the middle um, and it becomes it's so popular at the time uh, that quickly um, it becomes this phrase Tulalu becomes shorthand, becomes the namesake for Charleston's Black Fourth of July festivities. And so um, uh, even though it had been going on, this tradition had been going on since 1865 and it's 11 years in, um, after 1876, locals would refer to the Fourth of July festivities there as, as Tulalu. And this was, you know, very much a black celebration in Charleston. What was the response of white Charlestonians to you know these these festivals and dances? That's a great question. And and um, uh, so the first thing to, to think about and to understand is that you know these these dances, these festivals, this Tulalu celebration, and it is it begins in 1865. And it doesn't just begin in Charleston. Uh, Charleston arguably had the most distinctive, the biggest um, uh, festivals, but they happen all across the former Confederacy the, from uh, Tuscaloosa and, and uh, Mobile, Alabama, all the way um, up into Virginia. Uh, and uh, almost universally, uh, white Southerners, uh, ex-Confederates, uh, do not want to participate in them. They, they think this is a holiday. They wanted to break apart from the United States. They didn't recognize this, uh, this is their Independence Day. And so they do not want to celebrate the 4th of July. And especially they don't want to celebrate the 4th of July with um, formerly enslaved uh, African Americans, um, and so they complain about them and these festivals endlessly. Uh, most of the reporting that we have about Charleston's Tulalu uh, festivities comes out of newspapers like the Charleston Courier, and you have to sort of sift through pretty nasty and negative accounts of them, um, dismissive, derisive, uh, at times pretty racist accounts of what's going on to, to see exactly what's there. Um, uh, but they do follow them uh, sort of in great depth because um, these, these festivities anger local um, uh, whites so much. 
Now, I should say there are a few, um, uh, there are some whites who are living in Charleston at the time that are very supportive of them. They tend to be uh, people who are part of the growing biracial Republican Party, the progressive political party at the time that is uh, uh, in charge politically uh, during Reconstruction. So from 1865 to, eight, to the late 1870s in charge of, of the politics in Charleston and the city, but also in the state of South Carolina. And these are very political events. Um, Republican office holders, black and white, will give speeches, um, will sponsor um, uh, these festivities, will be, play prominent roles in the parades that take place. And so white conservatives who hate this biracial Republican role that want to see the South and South Carolina and Charleston governed just by conservative whites and certainly not by formerly enslaved people are outraged by these events because they're festivals, but also because of their political meaning. And you mentioned at the, the beginning of this that in White Point Garden today, if someone were to visit that, one of the things they would see is Confederate monuments. And and also I think that's something that that space is known for today. And clearly the, the celebrations that you're describing, it's not something that we see today on July 4th. How did it get from that point to being that, that annual large celebration to really disappearing? That's a, gr- a great question. And uh, really what happens is there is a very deliberate effort to put an end to these festivals. Uh, so the, the, the shorthand discussion or shorthand answer is starting in the late 1870s uh, in South Carolina and Charleston, um, in the state of South Carolina and the South more generally, these biracial, Repu- biracial Republican governments um, that were trying to make a, a social and political space for formerly enslaved people in the South, uh, they're driven um, out of government, uh, sometimes at the ballot box, often through force of arms. Um, this is a process known as redemption. Uh, and uh, Democrat, white conservative Democratic um, groups and white paramilitary terrorist organizations combine forces to... Uh, what they would say is take back the South, um, put it under conservative white control, and they are largely successful in this effort. That happens by the end of the 1870s. It takes a little bit of time before a couple of years where they will continue to hold Tulalu and other emancipation celebrations uh, in White Point Garden. But by the early 1880s, the city starts to push them out of White Point Garden and then eventually off the peninsula entirely. And so these festivals eventually move um, uh, to surround their surrounding islands um, where they where they persist. And then eventually they become more and more um, uh, quasi public affairs held by churches, held by schools, but not held in in public spaces. Um, They're prohibited from holding them in places like White Point Garden. Uh, African-Americans in Charleston and in the surrounding communities will continue to celebrate uh mark the fourth of july in emancipation day particularly the fourth of july though because the weather is a little nicer uh, than january 1st they'll still continue to market with private picnics um, we have accounts of um by african-american residents like mamie garvin fields who grows up in the the late 1800s and the 1890s in charleston she and her family would go and picnic in white point garden on fourth of july um, but by that point, it is not a, a public affair that draws thousands of people. Um, or it's, it's, it's really a private thing. And that was a very um, concerted effort by 
these redeemers who have taken back control of the politics of South of Charleston, of South Carolina. And it happens in other places too. The same process happens in Memphis, Tennessee. It happens in Atlanta, Georgia. And as this is happening, uh, white conservatives in the South increasingly make their peace with the 4th of July and start to mark the 4th of July again. Um, and so that's how that transformation happens. Uh, and that's exactly when Confederate monuments are starting to be really erected in places like White Point Garden. So, so you have um, uh, the first few monuments put it there in um, uh, small busts and stuff like that put there in the early 1900s. Uh, it's not until, I can't remember the exact date, I think it's 1932, when the Defenders of Fort Sumter monument is erected there. So it's sort of, they're going to, they drive the African-American community out. They, they, they drive the um, uh, Republican, biracial Republican party out of power. They drive this Black, fest these Black festivals of freedom out, and then they start erecting um, Confederate monuments. Our last stop is on Calhoun Street at a place that no longer exists, but was at one time a thriving Black-owned art gallery. What they would see is, is a ghost, something that no longer exists. The physicality of it only exists in the work that Teddy and Elise did, in his paintings, in her photographs. May Whitlock Gentry is the great-niece of painter Edwin Harleston and photographer Elise Harleston. Together, the couple opened the Harleston studio in a white three-story single house on Calhoun Street. At that time, local white artists prospered with the rise of the Charleston Renaissance, but black artists like the Harlestons were excluded. The studio was raised decades ago. It's a parking lot now, but it used to stand right beside Emanuel AME Church. It was outfitted, according to my mother's description, really beautifully. There was a piano, there was a Victrola. I mean, it was, it had really nice furnishings, but it was really designed to be the home of Teddy and Elise and my mother. When you first walked in, there was a glass display case that Elise's photographs were in. As you know, in those days, Black artists could not exhibit their work publicly unless it was at a church or a, a YWCA or something like that. And so then you entered apparently a really large foyer area, it was like a reception room. And my mother uh, recalled a visit by Langston Hughes, the uh, great African-American poet and playwright and writer. He came to see the studio one day and Teddy and Elise were not there. And my mother entertained him by playing the Victrola. <laughs> the studio actually was visited by a lot of luminaries, I guess you would call them. Apparently, if you were visiting Charleston, especially if you were Black, you would go and visit that studio. Uh, Teddy's paintings were lining the hallways, and so it was really like an art gallery, as well as their home. But at the end of the hallway was uh, Teddy and Elise's workspace, where she had her camera and her dark room, and where he had his easel and his paints and brushes and all that. Um, and that room had a skylight that took up almost the entire ceiling so that Teddy was able to paint indoors, adequate natural light. Can you talk a little bit about the Harleston family in Charleston? 
what was kind of their 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 role in Charleston at that time that that Edwin and, and Elise opened their studio? The Charleston family, as you might know, is was a mixed race family. Teddy's father was uh, one of eight children of a white planter named William Harleston who lived in Berkeley County, where the Harleston family originated in 1670 when the first Harleston came from England. And so William Harleston and his uh, the woman he enslaved, Kate Wilson, well, one of their eight children was my mother's grandfather, my great-grandfather, Edwin Billiard Harleston, because his son was also named Edwin. That's why they called him Teddy. The Harleston family, well, the Black Branch, really had a leg up on the vast majority of other former slaves because Captain was educated. He knew how to read and write, and he sure knew how to count money. His father apparently made sure that his ch- the children you know, were literate. They were educated. Teddy went to college. Both of his brothers went to college. And so the Harleston family was pretty prominent, especially in the Black community. And Teddy took a leadership role in civic affairs after he returned from studying art in Boston. That was in 1913. And it was shortly thereafter that he met Elise. I have heard these family stories from as long as I can remember. To me, it's really sad that you go to Charleston now and, you know, this this studio where Teddy and Elise created all this beautiful artwork is there's just no trace of it. The studio sounded like such an amazing place at, at the time. You know, what did that represent in the Black community in Charleston? I would imagine that the Black community was inspired by this couple that that created the first in the nation Black-owned art and photography studio run by a husband and wife. It was very unusual. And if Teddy and Elise had just been creating art, that would have been one thing. But they were also involved in the community. And then Teddy took a leading role in, in trying to fight Jim Crow and so I think that they were they were pretty well respected. The black community at that time was very cohesive because it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, you all lived in the in the community. And you yourself have gone back through their letters, right? And and not only read them um but have uh, shared some to a blog that you've created. So so clearly you've done a lot of family research. I guess just first, what has interested you in in their story and in their work? And then also going through those letters, is there any one in particular or any any passage that you maybe uh, think of after having gone through so many of those those documents in their work? I think the fact that I knew her and I loved her and that I've seen so many pictures of Teddy and he was just so handsome he would just take your breath away but he was also refined and polite but i think what what also interested me in particular was i felt teddy has been studied written about him been lots of books about teddy and generally they just mention elise as you know the wife of 
and or oh and she was a photographer and they were partners in the studio but nobody has really looked deeper at at her and her work and her life and her past but i felt that there was an opportunity to really mine those letters for insights about who she was and you know how she moved in in the world no definitely like stories like Edwin and Elise are so essential, especially here in you know Charleston. You hear so much of the Harlem Renaissance and artists there, but we had artists here ourselves. So hearing stories about Edwin and Elise are so important. And there was one particular story that Jennifer brings up about Edwin trying to paint a landscape at Magnolia Plantation. Could you describe kind of how he did that? He had a cousin who was married to uh, Thomas Mayhem Pinckney, who was a master carpenter and who was hired to build the footbridges at Magnolia Gardens. Teddy wanted to paint the gardens, obviously, because there's supposedly, you know, the most beautiful gardens in South Carolina, for sure, perhaps, you know, all of the South or even the nation. It was a, it was a, magnificent place and he had studied uh, landscape painting and he knew that the gardens were not open to black people unless they worked there and so he put on a carpenter's uniform and he took paint brushes pencils and all that and uh, he had a small camera that he would use occasionally but I'm guessing he went in there, made some sketches, took some pictures, and and then left when Pinckney's crew was done. Uh, how many visits he made, I don't know. But I do know that at a certain point, he wrote a letter to the owner. Um, I think his name was Hasty. And he asked permission to visit the gardens. And it was really heartbreaking to read. He uh, he kept a draft of the letter that he wrote. I've never seen the, the, the letter that Hasty received. But in this draft, he wrote that he would like to come to, to sketch the gardens and he would just be there briefly. And he wanted to come before the season began and there would be a number of visitors. And then he wrote, for I am colored. And in other words, you know, I... I'm not going to come in there. He he made promises about his behavior and demeanor, and and Hasty wrote him back and said, "I'm sorry, the season is too far along." Teddy had actually already been in Magnolia Gardens by then, and the reason I know this is because um, Sue Bailey purchased one of his Magnolia Gardens paintings and gave them to a friend of hers, and that friend later wrote her and said, oh no, later wrote Teddy and said, I have your beautiful painting of Magnolia Gardens in my office. Thank you so much. And that letter is dated a year or two before he wrote to Hasty. Um, I, you know, I see that as an act of resistance, <laughs> that he was going to be creative and figure it out and make it happen. And I think that's that's just what they did, Teddy and Elise. They just they just kind of stepped right over the the bounds that were you know all of that uh, Jim Crow. They just just did their thing. 
what would you want Charlestonians to know if if this or if or if Jennifer's story is the first time that they're hearing of the Harleston studio, hearing of of Edwin and Elise, what do you want them to know about their story and what would you maybe like to see someday in Charleston, maybe recognizing their their work? I I would want them to know how harmful racism and segregation were. There was a thriving uh, community of artists in, in Charleston. They, 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 it was all white and they called themselves, it, it was part uh, of the Charleston Renaissance. And Teddy was perhaps more highly trained than any of those others. And yet he was locked out because of the color of his skin. They were well aware of him, but they were locked out. I just think it's a shame. They were also not part of the Harlem Renaissance because they remained in Charleston, just continued to do their work as best they could under those circumstances. I think it would it would be wonderful. Uh, many of uh, Teddy's paintings are at the Gibbs Museum, but it would be wonderful if there were some, it wouldn't have to be a, a, a Harleston Museum, but if there were some recognition, acknowledgement of their contribution. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.